Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 6. And uh, as you're grabbing those elements, some of you I know are doing that right now, I just want to say a special thank you this morning. You know, our Sunday mornings here at Katherine Johnson Middle School, I've only been here a couple of months, so I'm not going to pretend like I I know all the blood, sweat, and tears that have been poured into making this happen each and every single week. But I just want to give a special uh, word of appreciation to our setup and teardown team today. They came, there was a little bit of a curveball that was thrown to them today. Some things were left on the stage, and they've done a great job, extra work this morning to make all of this happen. So uh, I just want to give a special thanks to that team this morning for making our Sunday morning worship service happen today. And also, too, if you're looking for a place to serve and a place to connect here at Fairfax Bible Church, Dave Kelly earlier talked about our small groups. Our service teams are a great way to do that as well. We'd love to have you join us on our setup and teardown team uh, and be a part of uh, what makes Sunday mornings happen around here as we worship Jesus. You can see Richard Newby in the back. Richard, raise your hand. If you want to join that team, he would be happy to help you uh, plug into that team. It's a lot of fun. So Acts chapter 1, verse 6, and we're going to read that in just a moment, but just as a review again, last week we launched a series in Acts chapter 1 and 2 called Origin Story, and we looked at several different comic book heroes that have origin stories. We saw uh, that Jeff Bezos at Amazon has an origin story. He didn't become the, the richest man in the world or second richest man in the world overnight, but he had a small, humble beginnings. And as we look at Acts chapter 1 and 2, we see the origin story of us. The church, it's been around for 2,000 years. Where did we come from? But our birth, our origin story is found in these first two chapters. And we're taking a look at the key events and the key people that were a part of this. The key figure himself being our King Jesus. And last week we looked at Jesus. He is the King who is risen from the dead. And he is the one who requires our allegiance but grants us his assurance. And we're going to continue to look at what King Jesus does as he gets prepared to go off the scene visibly here on the earth earth as he ascends up to heaven. And so we're going to look at that this morning here in just a moment. But I I want to have a question for you. And here's the question. Why did Jesus leave his followers? Why did Jesus leave his followers? I mean, Christians are called Christ followers. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. And so, and Jesus is the central figure of our faith He's a central figure of our devotion. He's been the central figure of our worship service this morning, right? So if he's the central figure, why would he leave his followers? Why did he have to go? You know, I've I've spent time thinking about this. Lord, wouldn't it be better if you were here? You You know, as you're seeing your pastor here, there's oftentimes I feel the weakness, I feel the temptations, I fail even, and I think, Lord Jesus, why wouldn't you be here? You're the perfect senior pastor, right? We need a better pastor. I need a better pastor, and that perfect pastor and shepherd is Jesus. So why did he go? Wouldn't it be better if he was here with us? And that's what we're going to take a look at this morning in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 26. Jesus leaving his followers behind on the earth, but doing it for a very, very specific purpose. A great reason, the reason he had to go to heaven. It wasn't just he decided to. He didn't like the, the heat of the Middle East. He, you know, he wanted to get away to some air conditioning in heaven. No, he left heaven for a purpose for you and for me. And this, is, this brings us to our big idea this morning before we take a look at the text. And our big idea is this. Jesus was taken up to glory to send his people out on mission. 
Jesus was taken up to glory to send his people out on mission. And let's take a look at that from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 26. And before we do, I'd like to just say a brief prayer to ask for God, the Holy Spirit, to help us as we look at the text. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you right now, and we ask that your Spirit would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things out of your law. Please help us now as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Follow along as I read aloud Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 26. It says this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who'd become a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kedama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have, uh, have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from, uh, from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, uh, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. It's a long section of scripture there, and we see a lot happening. We won't have time to cover it all this morning. But the big idea that I want us to see, that I hope we can see, that I believe the Holy Spirit through the scriptures wants us to see is this. Jesus was taken up to glory to send his people out on mission. Again, we're asking this question, why did Jesus leave his followers? And the answer is our big idea today. Jesus was taken up to glory to send his people out on mission. And we're going to take a look at this in two parts. And here's, here's part one. Jesus was taken up to glory. The second part, 
he sent his people out on mission. First of all, Jesus was taken up to glory. And if you know church history and if you know some of the language here, we call this event when Jesus was taken up to glory, his ascension. He ascends up to heaven. Now, before you get this idea that that heaven is somewhere off in space and if you just travel far enough, eventually we're gonna hit the door and one of our satellites is gonna get out there and it's gonna be right on the door of of heaven where, where God's dwelling is. Well, that's not quite right. You see, in the Jewish mind, in the Old Testament scriptures, there were three levels of heaven. There's the first heaven, which is the sky where the birds and the clouds are. There's the second heaven, which holds the stars and and the moon and the sun. And then the third heaven, this idea of God's dwelling place, the third heaven that is beyond our reach. And and we know it now, like it's it's an image that helps us to see that God, even though he's present with us here, he also has his special dwelling place in heaven, a a place that we can't see, but it's here actually even in our midst, uh, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said is in our midst, but it's God's special dwelling place. And, and Jesus is a sign that he had left the earth and gone to be with his father, ascended above the clouds out of the apostles' sight. And we call this the ascension. Now, now we see here, though, that it says that Jesus was taken up. That's a passive word. It's not like he kind of like squatted down and just did this like amazing like Air Jordan jump into the air. No, he was taken up. God the Father said, my son, it's time for you to come and be with me. And so he was taken up. And the ascension is Jesus' transition from the earth to heaven after his ministry, death and resurrection. And so he was physically taken up in his glorified, resurrected body up to the Father in heaven. And we know that he was seated at the Father's right hand in heaven. And so why isn't Jesus here with us today? Well, because he was taken up by the Father. And we see that right here in these verses in Acts chapter 1. So that's the ascension. He was taken up by the Father to heaven. But why is this significant? Again, wouldn't it have been better if he was here with us? Wouldn't it have been better for Jesus to remain and be here with us? Wouldn't it have been better for us if he was still here? At times, I'm tempted to feel that. But the significance of Jesus being taken up, the apostles believed it was extremely significant. First of all, here's the first thing that we can know about the significance of Jesus' ascension. First of all, we know that Jesus is king. Jesus is the king, and not just the king over Israel, not just the king over the Middle East. He's the king over all creation. You see, his throne is above every throne. His dominion is over all things, and so he reigns from heaven, and him going up to heaven and being seated at his Father's right hand signifies to all of his followers, to you and to me, that Jesus isn't just the president of a country. He's not just the king of some far-off land. He's the king over all creation. You see, Jesus being taken up by his father and placed at his father's right hand, it says to us that Jesus truly is God's Messiah, God's anointed one. He is the son of man and the son of God who reigns and has received authority over all creation. You see, as as God the son, he's returned to the glory that he had with his father before creation. This is magnificent, friends. As God the Son, he was at that place even before his birth. We see that in John chapter 17. Jesus prays to God the Father. He says, Father, grant me the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus as the Son of God is going back to his rightful place right next to the Father. 
in heaven. But as a man, though, you see, he put on human flesh. Now, as the God-man, he's been exalted to the highest place. So that as the Son of God and the Son of Man, he is the king over all creation. Extremely significant for him to be there for you and for me to know that the one that we serve has the highest authority in all of heaven. Well, the second thing is the significance of his ascension is he's king, but then he's also our redeemer. Jesus is our redeemer. You see, when he went up to heaven, he didn't stand there and start to get to work to say, well, I gotta finish this job that I left done. No, the writer of Hebrews says that he went to heaven and he took a seat because he said the work is done. The work of making the atoning sacrifice for sin that you need, that I need, that every person born on this planet needs, the solution for our sin problem has been accomplished because Jesus has gone to heaven and he sat down and he said, it's finished, the work is done. No more sacrifice is needed, no more atonement is necessary, not one more drop of blood has to be shed to get your sins forgiven, my sins forgiven, and to allow us to be in God. God's presence in a perfect relationship with him. Jesus is our redeemer. He's completed the work of redemption. He's seated in heaven, signifying the work, work is done. He purchased the gift for us as our redeemer to say, not only have I forgiven your sins, but as your redeemer, I'm sending you also the gift of the Holy Spirit to you, to be with you. My presence will be with you forever and ever. Oh my the significance of Jesus being taken up, his ascension. He's king, he's our redeemer. And thirdly, Jesus represents us in heaven. You've got an advocate in heaven right now. You've got a mediator, someone who is representing you to God right now. You know, I used to teach at a, a little, uh, a little, a little uh, retirement home in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Some sweet, sweet people. And, and they'd come together. We'd have a little church service together. And boy, I, I learned how to preach through a lot of snoring during those days. It was quite funny. But, you know, there were all kinds of different religious traditions there. And someone come, come up to me, and I was just Matthew. I'm just a guy, right? I was just learning how to preach at that time. And they'd come up to me and say, Father. And, and they'd want to start calling me Father in like a priestly kind of way. You see, they were looking. They were wanting me to pray for them and say, talk to God for me. Talk to God. God for me. But the beauty of Jesus, our high priest, being right at the Father's side is that through Jesus, you've got direct access to the throne room of God. You've got a high priest who's there for you. Not just God who doesn't understand what you're going through, but someone who's walked in your shoes on this earth. He knows what it's like to grieve. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And he said, I've gone through all of it and now I'm right there at the Father's side when you are in need, when you feel tempted tempted. I'm a perfect and faithful high priest who knows what it's like, and I bring your needs to the throne room of God. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our redeemer. The work is done. Jesus represents us in heaven. And one thing that's so exciting is that Jesus' ascension up to heaven also means that he's coming back in glory. Jesus is coming back in glory. He's returning in glory to rescue his people and to judge all the nations, all wickedness. You see, the apostles, they understood Jesus' resurrection and, essential, and ascension as absolutely vital and essential. 
They also understood it that this wasn't just something new, but, but this ascension, this being taken up, his, his exaltation to glory in heaven, it was the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel and to all humanity in the scripture. See, Psalm 110 uh, is a psalm of David. And David writes in Psalm 110, it's very interesting, he's speaking of someone who's gonna come from his line, one of his sons eventually. But listen to what he says in Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, said to my Lord. My Lord, David. Well, who's, who's David's Lord? David's the king of Israel. Who would be his Lord? No, he saw somebody that was coming that was also his Lord. And, and listen to what David writes about this, this Messiah king. A thousand years before Jesus even came onto the scene, David, David got a glimpse of it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is what the Father says to his Messiah. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, uh, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your mouth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is a mysterious psalm. What is David writing about? And the, and the people, the students of the Hebrew scriptures, they wondered, who is this Lord of David that would come, that would be seated at the right hand of the Lord, the God of Israel? The apostles understood this. They saw Jesus ascend and said, he's the one. He's the Messiah who is seated at the right hand of God. Daniel, the prophet, many years later, 500 or so years later, is, is sitting in Babylon and the people are in exile. They're slaves in Babylon, taken far away from the land because of their own sin, because they had rebelled against God and out of punishment, God sent them to Babylon. But Daniel saw a vision. He saw a vision of the Son of Man who would receive a kingdom. And it says in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so we gotta ask ourselves, who is the son of man? Were the apostles, were they looking for someone else? Where they're like, well, Jesus was great. We got to hang out with him for quite a long time. But maybe we ought to be waiting for someone else. Maybe someone else fits this mold of this Lord of David and this son of man of Daniel. Oh, no. You see, the apostles understood clearly through the ascension, through Jesus being taken up, that Jesus is this one. He is this king. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 2, 8 through 11. And being found in human form, Jesus he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's highly exalted. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Paul also writes in Ephesians chapter, 
chapter 1, verse 18 to 23, he gets it. Jesus is the Messiah. And he's praying for the Ephesians. He says, I want you to have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Listen to this. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, it doesn't get any higher than the place that Jesus holds for you and for me. He's the one who has all power And so our job here is to say, Lord, open our eyes to see how great this King Jesus is, the one the apostles believed was ascended and taken up to heaven and given the place and name that is above every name. That's our Jesus. That's the significance of this ascension. And so we could see his, taken, his being taken up to heaven. It's not bad for us. It's good for us. It's what we need more than anything. Jesus' ascension to glory, he was enthroned and he was in, crowned as our king. It gives our lives context. It gives our lives meaning. It gives our lives purpose. We have the hope of glory of our king, your king, and my king. You know, in these dark days that we've been living in, we've been looking for context. We've been seeing people even in the streets recently just protesting and crying out and agonizing that the things either go their way in celebration or don't go their way in, in lament. And we look for context. Is there any hope? Is there anything that I can bank on? Is there anything that I could stake my life in? You know, when you think about a child, you promise a child an opportunity to go on vacation to the beach. And you say, hey, if you work really hard and you obey mom and dad, we've got a reward for you. We're going to take you to the beach to the best vacation that you've ever been on in your entire life. Now, if those parents aren't, aren't, aren't good parents, they may give their child false hope and they keep extending it out. Well, we'll try a little harder, try a little harder, try a little harder, and that hope and hope and hope just gets extended farther and farther away till that child gets discouraged. But if they're good parents, if they love this child, they've already shown that they can be trustworthy people. They've shown in the past significant things that they've done to show that this child can bank on the fact that, hey, there's a vacation to the beach coming. If I just do what mom and dad say a little while longer, it's going to come. In the same way, friends, we've been given context to our lives. We don't have a false hope. We don't have a fool's hope. Waiting 2,000 years, you know what? Sometimes I feel like a fool. Why have I been waiting all this time? Well, it's because Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's been exalted to heaven, and it gives my life purpose and meaning and context. Because Jesus is in heaven right now, and he's coming back for you and for me. If we are in Christ, we have hope no matter how dark these days get, friends. We have hope that goes beyond the grave. We have hope that goes beyond the political atmosphere of our country. We've got hope, friends. We've got hope because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and he's coming back again one day for you and for me. Jesus was taken up to glory. And it's good for you and good for me. But that's only the first part of it. Jesus was taken up to glory. 
And secondly, Jesus sent his people out on mission. Jesus sent his people out on mission. Take a look with me again at Acts chapter one, verse eight. Before Jesus goes, he gives them this command. And I believe this is the theme, the key verse of the entire book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He says, I'm about to go, but I promise the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Witnesses, those who testify to what you've seen and heard about me. So we got to ask ourselves, if Jesus went, if he was taken up and ascended, how is that connected to the mission? His exaltation, his being lifted up to glory and authority from God the Father granted Jesus the right and the ability to send the Spirit and empower his people to go on on mission. You see, Jesus wasn't going to go up to heaven and say, all right, you got this mission now, and it's all on you guys. I'm sure you could figure it out. You're smart people. You know, maybe in your fishing days, you know, maybe you learned some skills that can help you fulfill this mission. There's no way. There's no way. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you to the farthest places of the earth. But guess what? I'm giving you something that will empower you in my mission. And because I'm going, because I'm going, I can spread my presence everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. You see, as long as Jesus was here, we had to be, you know, the apostles had to be around him. His disciples had to be near him to follow him. But he says, I'm going to heaven and I'm sending my spirit so that in the spirit, my presence will be in every single one of you, no matter where you go, so that I can spread you all out over this planet and my presence is with you. And so Jesus is saying, I have to be exalted so that I could send you out on mission. Well, what is this mission? What did Jesus call the apostles to do? Well, let's think about it. What's an apostle? And I won't spend too much time here. We saw a long section where Peter was thinking through, hey, we lost one of our friends, one of the apostles. In fact, he was a betrayer. He was a traitor. He turned Jesus in and he decided to turn toward his own way and he left Jesus. And so they wanted to have a 12th one to be a part of them. In fact, Jesus wanted them to have a 12th man to be a part of this. But what is an apostle? These are the 12 men sent out by Jesus as his authorized agents to bear witness to his resurrection and establish his church. The 12 apostles sent men, sent out by Jesus as his authorized agents to bear witness to his resurrection and establish his church. Well, who who are these guys? Well, they were guys that, that didn't just see Jesus alive, but they had to have observed his life from the very beginning of his ministry. They had to see his baptism. They had to see his miracles. They had to see his death. They had to see his resurrection. They had to hear his sermons. They had to be a part of Jesus' life so that they could truly represent him as his authorized agents, these 12 men. Well, why 12? Is a signification that God was restoring Israel once again, just like there were 12 tribes that belonged to his kingdom. He chooses 12 men to signify, I'm restoring Israel, and in restoring Israel, I'm restoring the world to these apostles who will bear witness about me. So these apostles, these are 12 men sent out on mission, promised the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes to heaven. We're going to see next week when Jesus delivers on his promise to send the Spirit. But these men were to go out and they were to be Jesus' witnesses. But what was their message? Well, we see it in, in verse 22. 
Verse 22, it says they, they, have, to be, uh, they have to go out among us uh, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from one of us. Uh, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They had to bear witness to the fact that they walked with a man who wasn't just crucified. That's not incredible. There were all kinds of people that were crucified in the Middle East and in the Roman Empire at that time. They didn't have to bear, of course they had to bear witness to the significance of his crucifixion. But really what they had to bear witness about was we saw him die and we saw him rise from the dead. We can bear witness, eyewitness testimony, testifying to the truth about who Jesus is and what he had done. This was their message. And this was the mission from Acts 1.8. They were to be witnesses that Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And he had done all the work necessary through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. You see, these were the objective truths that they had to bear witness to. But they didn't just bear witness to that. They also said his grace and his power came and it transformed us. There was a subjective nature to their testimony as well. You see, we, we're, we're people that speak to our own individual experiences. You have an experience. If you've come to Jesus Christ, you have a personal experience with him, I hope. I hope you have. If you've not had a personal experience with Jesus, you know, our brother JT talked about an encounter with Jesus a few weeks ago. You personally need to have an encounter with Jesus. That's the subjective nature that only you can know about through God the Holy Spirit in your life. But that subjective experience has to point you to the objective truth about who Jesus is. And so the apostles were to go around and speak to the fact Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the King, Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead but he's also transformed our lives. And they were to be witnesses to what Jesus has done. Where were they to do this? <laughs> In short, everywhere. Everywhere they went. As they, as they walked along the road, as they ate meals with people, as they visited family, as they encountered people. And we're gonna see all throughout the book of Acts, every person they encountered, they came across, they introduced them to who Jesus was everywhere. And as we'll see here in, in, in the next few weeks and as we walk through Acts, we're gonna see that Acts 1-8 is actually an outline for the entire book. They were to go, these witnesses were to go to Jerusalem and we see they spent time in Jerusalem in Acts chapter one through seven. We see they were to go to Judea and Samaria and we see that in chapters eight through 12 and we see that they were to go to the ends of the earth and we see it spreading all throughout the Roman Empire in chapters 13 to 28. But these are just 12 guys, just 12 guys, just 12 humans like you and me. How would they ever achieve this mission? They could only achieve it because Jesus said, I'm sending my Holy Spirit. He brings the presence of Christ to his people as he accomplishes his work through them and he empowers his people. Well, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for the church today in 2022? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus was here with us now? Sometimes I feel it, and I'm sure you feel it too, but Jesus has been taken up to glory so that he could send us out on his mission. Matthew he records the last words of Jesus this way in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. He says, Jesus came to his disciples and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching these disciples to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I love the mission statement at Fairfax Bible Church. I hope you know it. I hope we, I hope we recite it to each other sometimes. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of all nations as we live in loving community. That's what it's all about. And it's derived right here from this origin story. Acts chapter one, verses eight, we're, we're standing on the shoulders of the apostles and those who've gone before us for thousands of years to say, we're here to bear witness to what Jesus has done and call people to say, come follow Jesus with us in loving community. And through that, we give glory to God. It's as simple as that. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. It's not easy, but it's simple. And sometimes we get confused and conflicted about all the things that we're experiencing here at church. But when it boils down to it, all of the, the, the slides and the tech and the setup and the teardown and, and all the things that we do, the core of who we are as a church is this. Because Jesus has been uh, taken up to heaven, he has sent us out on mission to make disciples. We testify to the fact that we have written testimony of the apostles passed down to us through the scriptures, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that Jesus has died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven. But we've also got something subjective too. We've got transformed lives. You and me and those that you're sitting next to, we're all living, breathing, walking witnesses and testimonies to the power of King Jesus because he's changed me and he's changed you. So in closing and as we prepare for communion, I want to ask, what does this mean for Monday? What does this mean for Monday? What does this mean tomorrow that I am a testimony to King Jesus? What does it mean that I'm called to live sent out. Well, as I said before, we, we live in this between time, between, between Jesus' ascension and being taken up to glory and, and his future return. And it gives context and meaning to our lives. And we as his ambassadors, those who are sent out on mission, are called to go and bring the good news about Jesus to everybody we encounter. Now, that may seem scary to you. Sometimes it's scary to me. And I'm not talking about tomorrow morning you need to stand outside on, on the corner of, of Germantown Road here on a soapbox with a, with a megaphone. Jesus is king to people that are you know, driving past you on the street. But it's those moments when you're sitting and having a cup of coffee. It's those moments in your workplaces where people are feeling the brokenness and pain of this world. It's those moments when you're sitting around the dinner table with your kids and your, and your spouse and you testify to the greatness of Jesus and how he's changed your life. That's what it means to live on mission. We talk about Jesus. We stand up for him when it's time to say, you know what? Jesus needs to be brought up in this conversation. I'm gonna bring him up. And you do it. It's not easy, but it's simple. It's simple and that's why we need one another to call each other to say, are you living on mission? When was the last time you spoke to your, your child, your spouse, a, a coworker, a neighbor to say, I gave glory to God because I testified to Jesus' power in my life. See, this Peter who was the head of the apostles, if you want to put it this way, from Acts chapter one, he, he writes in 1 Peter chapter two, verse nine, he writes about you and me, the church. The church he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Jesus was taken up so that his people would be sent out on mission. You have a story, and it's a simple story. It's a simple story. It has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's, it's pretty simple. Your life before Christ, your life before Christ, how you came to believe in Christ, and then your life in Christ now. That's all you have to include in your story. It's really simple. Your life before Christ, how you came to Christ, and your life now in Christ. You could fill in the gaps however you want, but every single one of us, that's a part of our story. That's how we testify. And so I want to challenge you today. Begin crafting your story if you haven't already. Begin crafting your story. Here's some points to just think about. Keep your story brief. Briefer than my sermon, of course, right? Keep your story brief. Have a one-minute version. Have a five-minute version. Have a 15-minute version. Write it down. Just write down the main points. Your one-minute version will be real succinct. The five, a little bit longer, 15, that's like a cup of coffee conversation, right? Think about it. Have your story. Make it brief. Let it be focused on who? On Jesus and his gospel, not on yourself. You could bring the details of your story, but make it point to Jesus. Let your story be personal. Now, this is a challenge for some of us because some of us want to have these grandiose, like, transformation stories. But if it's not honest, it's not real, it doesn't point to Jesus, it points to us. Be honest about your story. You don't have to have some uh, past of being some, you know, fabulous criminal in, in, in this world. Just talk about where you came from and your story. Every story matters. Every story matters. And let it be natural. You got to practice your story. Practice to one another. My challenge to you today over lunch, just take one minute. I think it'd be a great exercise for our kids to hear our stories once again, right? Let me tell you my story. This is how I came to know Jesus before, how I came to him in my life in Christ now. Practice with one another. Let it become so natural so that when you get into conversations, I know how to bring him up, to live on mission, to testify. I've got a good friend back in California. Uh, This guy, I mean, when he's got his serious look on, he's the kind of guy that you don't want to meet in a dark alley. But I love this brother deeply. His name is Dino. And my brother Dino, we we love to embrace each other. We love to hug each other. I mean, this guy feels like a rock. He's just built, right? But we love to laugh, weep, cry. We love to talk about Jesus together. But if you were to know our stories, our stories are as different as they could be. You see, my friend Dino, he came from a really rough background, worked for the, for the Mexican cartel. He was a drug dealer. I mean, he was, he was a leader in, in, in the drug scene in the San Francisco Bay Area and in California, dealing all over the place. He was a tough guy, a violent man, a womanizing man, and God got a hold of his life. He had a motorcycle accident and in a hospital bed, clutching for his physical life. Some people came to him and testified to the goodness of Jesus. His wife had been praying for him for so many years and he came to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and it transformed his life completely. I mean, there's days that we talk now and and I just talked to him on the phone yesterday to have permission just to even share this story with you. But we weep as we start talking. He says, Matt, 
There's people that still come to me and are asking me to do a, do a run for them or to do a job for them. And I could, I could get tens of thousands of dollars in just a few hours. But now what am I doing? I'm cleaning toilets at the church. I, I serve and work as a janitor at the church to clean toilets. And I, you know what? The Lord's providing for our, our needs, but, but I don't have a lot of means, right? I don't have a lot like I used to. But he says, I've got more satisfaction in my soul than when I had all kinds of money in that bank account. And I would never go back to that life. My story is so different from that. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor for a season. I've been protected and sheltered from so much wickedness and darkness in this world. And so when you look at our stories, you think to yourselves, how could we have anything in common? It's Jesus. It's the exalted, risen, glorious Jesus. And whether you're Dino or you're Matthew or somewhere in between, share your story. Your story of what Jesus has done for you in your life. That's what it means to live on mission. And we're going to get ready to take communion now. And one of the ways that we live on mission is that we do this. And you may think to yourself, how is this living on mission? This is a, a little plastic cup, and, and I know that it's noisy, and it's a little complicated, so go ahead and start doing it now. Start peeling it back. The, there's a thin layer on the top for the wafer and then a thicker layer for the juice. You can go ahead and start doing that. But I, I want to read for you a, a few verses here that talk about how this is integrated into our mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, Paul writes this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Now listen to this. This is how we fulfill the mission. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a visible reminder to you and to me and to those watching, if you've never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, that we believe in the testimony of the apostles, that our Jesus died on the cross for our sins to pay the penalty that we can never pay on our own. And he rose from the dead victoriously and he's ascended to heaven as the King of kings and Lord of lords and he's coming back again one day. And so these elements, the bread reminding, of, reminding us of his body that was given for us, the juice reminding us of the blood that he shed on the cross for us, are reminders to us that he's coming again. And through this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's part of our mission, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, Jesus was taken up to glory to send us, to send you and me out on mission. And I wanna give you a moment right now. I told you, hey, let's talk about our stories. But before you even share them with one another, why don't you just recite your story back to our Lord. Say, Lord, I remember my life before you. I thank you that you brought me to your feet through your grace, and I thank you for a transformed life now. So I'm gonna give you a moment right now, just to yourself, recite your testimony, your story to the Lord, remembering what he did for you through his death, burial, and resurrection, and then we'll partake together. Go ahead, saints, proclaim his death until he comes.
Lord Jesus, we can speak to you right now because you are taken up to heaven and you are seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. None of us were born with an entrance into your kingdom. No, because of sin and our rebellion against your commands, we were shut out of your kingdom. Now we all have different details, different stories of, of what that looked like, but because, Jesus, you came and put on human flesh, you lived with us, you were tempted as we are yet without sin, because you bled and died on the cross and rose from the dead to show yourself to be the Messiah, Son of God, and because you're seated at, at the Father's right hand right now, we can come to you and we can say we're welcomed into your family because of this bread which represents your body because of this juice which represents your blood. We have entrance into your kingdom. Thank you for the new life that you've given to us in Christ. How you are transforming us day by day. You're causing us to, to fall less in love with this world and more in love with you every single day. We see your goodness. We see your grace. We see your righteousness and your power. There's no one, there's nothing like you. As my, my friend and brother Dino says, I know what my life was like before and I would never, ever turn back to it again. And so we are those, your people that say, we honor you, King Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We long for the day. We long for the day. Right now, we remember you through the bread and the juice, but someday we're going to touch your body. We're going to see the scars that you have remaining from that crucifixion, and we will weep and cry and be overjoyed and rejoice and praise you at your feet forever and ever. And so we proclaim your death, Lord, until you come back. Thank you that you were taken up. Thank you for sending the Spirit. Thank you for sending us on mission. Help us to be on mission even today to speak of what Jesus has done for us in our lives as we trust in the testimony of the apostles that you did die and rise from the dead and ascend. But we thank you for this time right now that we can remember and proclaim your death until you come back. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please partake with